Hello, and thanks for turn, tuning in to episode number 50 with Peter Taunton today. Uh, Peter is the founder of Snap Fitness. So uh, if you've ever seen one of those, there's over like 2,600 locations. He's the guy that started it up, but he's got an absolutely phenomenal story. And I think you're going to get a lot of value out of his uh, mindset on life, but also how he started business and how he's grown it. Hello and welcome to an episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. Today, I'm honored to have Peter Taunton on with me. Uh, Peter is the founder of Snap Fitness and uh, was the CEO of Lift Brands. And the two things that have really stood out to me about Peter as I've kind of know his story and just, uh, you know, a little bit about him is one, he is a serial entrepreneur and is constantly searching for new opportunities and has the business knack and mindset to make those work. And then two, he's a very humble individual and learned work ethic at a very young age. And uh, that just continues to pour out of him today. So Peter, thanks so much for being on. Oh, thanks for having me. Other look forward to this. Absolutely. So we're going to throw it a little bit back to when we're eight years old. The, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well in an eight-year-old Peter where your dad is, uh, you know, working at a grocery store, owning the grocery store, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to set up a popcorn stand and I'm going to sell popcorn there. But there's one day where he's, he asks you a specific question and this changes your mindset on how to sell popcorn and other things in the future. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and let me just preface, it wasn't, it wasn't really a choice that I had being a at eight years old, I mean, my dad said, look, it was something that my brothers and sisters did before me. And when you got to be a certain age, they stepped, they, they moved on and got into working in other parts of his grocery store. And, and that's where I stepped in. So it wasn't a choice. And yeah, you're exactly right. It was a, a day. I remember I'm, I'm sitting behind my popcorn stand and my dad walks past me, walks about 30 steps and he stops dead in his tracks and he pivots. He turn, turns right back towards me and, and they, he stops in front of me. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what did I do? Right. Like an eight-year-old probably would. Yeah. And a serious look on his face. And he goes, Hey, son, how's business? And I was just getting ready to give him my little eight-year-old dissertation, how business was slow. And then he said, puts his hand up, stops me midstream. And he's I say, look, if it, it's slow, it's slow because you're not going out there, you're not going without even getting your business. If you want to, if you want to go get, if you want your business to increase, you got to go get it. You can't just wait for it to come. You got to go chase it. Yes. To get out from behind that stand and go ask people if they'd like some of your popcorn. So I let him get away because I didn't want to see, I didn't want him to watch me blow it the first few times. <laughs> but then I, then I did. And, and I, you know what, when I was eight years old, I was a shy kid. So this was a stretch for me to, to go up to complete strangers and pull on their little shirt and say, Hey, would you like some popcorn? But you know what? And who would have thought that, that some of those lessons I learned at such a young age would be so prevalent in my life today. I mean, that was just a great message that my dad shared with me. And I'm, I'm grateful for that message and, and several others that he gave me along the way. Yes. Now, thinking about that, and you know, you're, you're such an advocate of giving back, helping other people, you know, reach certain success levels. Um, I'm sure that that is a lesson that you wish more people would have learned at a younger age or would be willing to learn, but, you know, talk about how you help, uh, you know, business owners understand that today. Hey, sometimes you really have to be going out and getting it. It's not just sitting behind the desk and letting it come to you. Well, and I do that a lot. I mean, so, since stepping down, I spend a lot of time mentoring and coaching and yeah. a lot of the people that I coach with, and it's not just necessarily, it's not necessarily everything, just business. Some of it is, is mentoring in life and, mm -hmm. 
And sometimes in life, you've got to go, you've got to go get it, right? Otherwise, life passes you by or you wake up one day and you say, man, my gosh, I, you know, I haven't done shit with my life. I'm, and, and, you know, they think that it's over. So there's a couple of things that I try to help them overcome. Number one, you, you can't change the past. So let's get our head around that. And let's yes. just forgive yourself for not, for not moving as fast as you probably would have liked to today in retrospect. But, but uh, let, let's figure out what we're going to do moving forward and then helping them set out a plan that's, that's kind of an obtainable plan. It does, you know, I think people that are looking to pivot in their lives, I try to help them with the, I, I always paint the analogy or, 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 or put out the analogy where it's a blank canvas and you're holding the brush, throw everything. There's, there's, there's no bad ideas, throw everything that would be the perfect life for you. And that's really not the time to, to be conservative or start talking yourself out of it. Just Put everything on that on that painting that you want. Yeah. And then the second step of that is look at what you've created and then pull back some of the things that probably are not realistic. And 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 I say that loosely, but I mean, if one of your things is you want to be an astronaut and you're 40 years old, it's probably not going to happen, right? So we have to move those lofty goals away. But so I help them screen through and then and then set up a timeline to how they can obtain those goals. And setting milestones is very critical because. Some people's, I mean, for me, as an example, I chased my dream for 20 years and, yeah. and I know it was going to be 20 years. I'll be honest with you. I probably would have, would have, would have, you know, pivoted and done something else, but I was, you know, I, so, but I had goals and I set milestones along the way and I could always seeing movement. I was always seeing this natural progression. So it kept me motivated, kept me inspired. I love that. That's so important to yeah have those milestones and you know the small victories on the way to winning the battle, right? We kind of talk about that is you know hey are we winning the you know small victories and getting the battle and don't always just focus on the ending ending results. So that's good. Yeah. You know I talk and I talk about that in my book Impossible Hill about just that whole process of you know setting setting your goals. What does that perfect life look like? Then then the second step is creating creating a plan, a plan of action, which includes those timelines. And then the, the third piece of it is, is the most difficult. And it, it breaks my heart when I, when I help some people and, and they do, they're so diligent in steps one and two, but the third step is the scariest. And that's where you have to make the jump. And, yep. and a lot of people, they stand right there on the edge of the pool, never jumping in. And, and I tell you what, it's it, it, at the end of the day, it's gotta be their choice, but uh, you know, I can't imagine one thing I don't want to have in my life is a life of regret when I'm when I know that I'm in the you know the latter the latter breaths of my life. Absolutely. Well, one based on your life, and we're here about that today. I don't think you're going to have many. Uh, certainly not at this point. But uh, so something as a young individual you get introduced to is racquetball, and you know racquetball. Who knew that it could take you all the places that it ends up taking you? But talk a little bit about your first experience with racquetball, and then kind of the progression and uh, and how that was, uh, you know, an integral part of your life. Well, it was it was for me. I was always an athlete, and um, and racquetball did many many things. I was it, it gave me confidence for one thing, and it also completely humiliated me others. So I yeah. played I played racquetball in the town that I grew up in. I played racquetball. I started playing racquetball when I was 13 and it was a sport that came really natural for me. And I can't answer why it just did for myself and my twin brother. And I remember I was playing for a couple of years and I was good. I was, I was probably in the top two or three players in, in the, in the town that I grew up in. Right. I'm playing at, at 15 years old. I'm playing all kinds of older adults and 
very athletic and, and doing really well. And I remember there was this, this junior national tournament that was in Minneapolis. Yeah. And I remember talking to my mom and I'm, I'm telling her I'm 15 years old. So she was going to have to drive me. Right. And I said, I, you know, I want to go play in this junior national. I think I've got a chance. Right. Yeah. I, had, I had no idea, you know, what, what the talent level was out beyond this little, little, little pond that I was swimming in. Right. And anyway, I went up there and this kid from Michigan beat me like literally, literally no embellishment, like 21, one, 21, three. It was an absolute embarrassment. I was mortified, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it showed me racquetball in a whole different light. Yeah. And I went back and, and honestly, I worked and worked and worked. And by the time I was 17, I was, I was a sponsored pro. I was sponsored by one of the probably, I was sponsored by the world's largest racket manufacturer, Ectolon. And, and, uh, and then played, played professional racquetball for 12 years with my twin brother. Yeah. Now uh, I want to hear about how you got the sponsorship, but a question I'd love to talk about just since you mentioned the, the loss, um, is, you know, what that taught you. And then when you got back home, what, what motivation that brought you to really work and continue to get better? Well, for me, the, I mean, I'll be honest with you, in the moment, it taught me humility because I was getting my ass kicked, make no joke about it. I mean, right. I mean, it was so bad and I was an, I was an athlete and I was proud and I'm right. I mean, so, but yeah. the guy was just out flat out outplaying me. It was horrible. Right. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I was completely embarrassed and, and humiliated, you know, personally humiliated. Right. Yeah. But, but I took that lesson and I said, okay, well, this is, this is clearly how the next level plays. And this guy was a junior player out of Michigan. And he was also, he was a very, very good player. He was one of the, he was one of the better junior players in the country. Okay. So he was, he was no slouch, but it didn't matter. I mean, it's the, how it just shows you how I, naive I was thinking that I had a shot. Right. Right. Um, so just le learning that playing in that, playing that sport and being in that environment and getting completely humiliated. And then the other side of this is answering the bell, going home and saying, Hey, look, okay. You're going to do one or two things. You're either going to, you're either going to be a complete pussy and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this sport. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go on to playing checkers or something, whatever. Right. Yeah, right. Right. But, but instead I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to play, I'm going to play this game at that level. And, and that's what I set out to do. And I literally, I changed my game. It wasn't that I changed my, my workouts. I just saw the game played so much differently. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that just set, set, set the bar for me. And I, you know, so it was great. It was a great lesson for me. Absolutely. Now, how did the sponsorship come about? I, I think that's fascinating that at such a young age, you know, you reached such a pinnacle of success in that sport that you were getting sponsorships. So here's, I was, I was always an athlete and I yeah. could hit, I could hit the ball a ton. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, racquetball, the, the style of racquetball that I played was kind of a grip it and rip it. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was a very fast pace and I'm in there pounding balls one afternoon and that, the 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 Ectolon um, rep happened to be in come into the club to talk to the manager, okay. and here's this pounding in the court, right? And he comes and, and sticks his head over the the ledge, and he's watching me pound these balls, right? He sits there. I thought he stood there for a long time because I was just in there pounding balls. I wasn't playing. I wasn't in a match. I was just practicing, right? Yeah. He sits there for about fifteen minutes, staring me down, right? And then. Um, the manager comes down into the court. He goes, Hey, there's a guy upstairs wants to, wants to talk to you. Right. Yeah. So then he just said, Hey, look, man, you know, you, you, you're pounding, you look like an athletic kid. And you know what, we're, 
we're looking for we're looking for up and coming players. We, you know, we'd like to we'd like to give you a shot at sponsorship. Well, that's I mean, to me, that was so flattering. Right. Because right? I knew Ectolon was the largest racket manufacturer in the world. And I thought, my gosh, it's one thing to get sponsored, but get sponsored by the world's largest racket manufacturer. I was so I was I was completely flattered and 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 uh, didn't want to disappoint. Right. So when they when they gave me the sponsorship, I mean, it was I I you know, I, I put everything into it and, yeah. and clearly, you know, played, played, you know, for 12 years and, and did really well. Yeah. Well, so something I'd like to, you know, just maybe hear your insight on there is I think there is, you had mentioned you received a lot of confidence from being good at racquetball, which is a very natural thing, right? What we're good at drives a significant portion of our confidence. But I also think there's power in someone seeing something in you before maybe you even saw it in yourself, right? Not saying that you didn't think, hey, I could go play professional or I couldn't be sponsored there, but to have them step forward and say, man, you you seem to be pretty darn good at this. Like we'd like you to, you know, represent us. Talk a little bit about, you know, that power of someone seeing something in you, maybe before you even, uh, you know, thought it or saw it in yourself. And that's, that's true. You know what? It happens all the time. I was, I'm the youngest of seven kids. My, I have an identical twin. We're the youngest of seven kids. And I'll be honest with you, what, you know, when, when it came to my brother and I, my parents were spent. Okay. They were, <laughs> they were spent, right. So we didn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. So, you know, if you wanted to make it happen, most of the attention that we got was because we were identical twins. It wasn't because of anything we did. Yeah. And, and really being a twin, you really had nothing to do with that. Right. So <laughs> not, that's not going to feel you full of confidence, but having, having somebody see something in you, you know, and, and even from my father, he did the best he could with what he had, but yeah. his, his, his way of doing things was hey, look, you're going to do it or else. I mean, mm. right. And that's kind of old school. Yep. And, and I responded to that, you know, my dad, I remember when I was a kid, my dad said, Hey, Peter, it's, it's going to be like this. You're going to be in school. You're going to be playing sports or you're going to be working for me. Okay. So yeah. I said, all right. I mean, I could get my head around that. That's not very simple. That's a fairly simple concept to grasp. Right. <laughs> so, and that, so I knew that's how this is going to be. Right. He didn't ever yeah. say, Hey, look, you know what? You're a hell of a racquetball player. He didn't, he didn't ever say that. You know, but coincidentally, as I started playing and growing in the sport and suddenly, you know, winning, literally, I mean, literally my twin brother and I, we would, we'd win probably 75% of the tournaments we played. Wow. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. we, 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 we played at a very high level and, yeah. and if we didn't, if we didn't win them, we were right there in the semis, you know, we were right there all the time. So it was great. It was a great um, experience for us. Right. And yeah. And, you know, towards the end of our careers. And even when I, when I quit playing, you know, I quit fairly, fairly, you know, at the top because I was so proud. I said, look, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to get beat by people that I had been kicking their ass for the last 10 years. Right. right. I, I wasn't going to sit there and, and let some of the other, you know, up and comers beat me. I was too proud. Yep. No, that's good. Yeah. So the the gym you had been working uh, working out at practicing at is an important thing and you had taken notice to a few things that maybe weren't going the way if you owned a gym you would want it to go and before you move down to florida you have an important conversation with the owners of the gym yeah and i felt that i felt indebted to it i mean number one it was this is the place that i'd been playing since i was 13 years old and i actually was moving down to florida to play in the sunbelt tour I had quit college and was, and was going to go play the Sunbelt tour with my twin brother and I. So anyway, having breakfast, I just said, guys, I just, 
I just want to tell you, because I knew the club was losing money. Okay. I knew that it was not a successful venture and there was no reason that it couldn't be. It was just so poorly managed. I would, so, I would watch this manager come in and literally just not do it, not engage the members, not even really engage the club. He was a former athlete and just kind of a lug, right? He didn't, yeah. he didn't do it. He didn't, he didn't do the job. And I, I, I just shared the guys. I said, look, you know what? I, I didn't throw a bunch of daggers at the guy that was managing. I just, I just more or less said, Hey, look guys, I just want you to know that it's not, he, he's not going to get you the promised land. Okay. He's not your guy. I don't know who is, but he's not your guy. And then, and then we're wrapping up breakfast and I'm, and I literally just kind of look over my shoulder and I just very flippantly say, you know, you guys ever want to turn this club around? Give me a call. <laughs> and that was literally just how it went down. Right. They yeah. give me a call and they're like, Oh yeah, well, I'll be down if my phone didn't ring about a year later. Right. Yes. So, I said, yeah, I mean, and their, their deal was they're going to pay me $16,000 a year. Yep. But, uh, but if I could turn it around, they, I could buy them out with the profits. Now you're talking about a business that was losing 200,000 a year. All right. So that's a, yeah. that's a big swing. Right. right. And, and I, I was able to do it. You know what? I bartered with the local businesses because they had no budget. They had no money and no, no capital to, to invest back into the club, to do it any improvements. The club was tired. And so I just did a lot of bartering, a lot of trading for carpet, for paint, for electrical, gave them memberships for carpet. I mean, it just, and the community, they, they, they appreciated the effort that I was putting forth because yeah. suddenly things were getting done and right. when, when they had sat there for, you know, the previous 10 years watching this club just completely deteriorate. Right. So anyway, I was able over an eight year period, I was able to buy everyone out and, and, and that ended up being my launch pad into, into the wellness space for obviously the next, you know, I've been in the industry for 35 years. Yeah. So before we keep elaborating there, one thing I'd like to hear a little of your insight on is I think too frequently people are willing to sell the dream of what they're really wanting for, for a more guaranteed income today. Right. And I'm putting guarantee and income there. So, you know, some people would say, well, gosh, 16,000, that's not that much money. You know, I could probably go here and make 30 or 40, you know I mean? Whatever the number is. And maybe I'll just go do that. Whereas, you know, someone that maybe it believes in themselves or they believe in, you know, the business, whatever it is, it's like, well, I'm willing to take a lesser dollar amount today with the opportunity for significantly more in the future. So just talk about maybe, you know, having that mentality or, you know, being willing to, you know, say, hey, I'll take less today, even though maybe my friend's making twice as much, knowing I've got an opportunity to blow them out of the water over the next five, 10, 20 years. For me, I always say, um, and this is an important point that opportunity does, doesn't knock it whispers. Okay. Yeah. And, and for me, I didn't think about here's this business that's losing 200 grand a year. I didn't see that so much as I knew I was practical. And I said, look, you're lucky. You're looking at a guy that had quit college. Okay. College was not for me. I quit college. I always wanted to be in business. I'd watched my dad. I had a front row seat to seeing what entrepreneurialism looked like from my dad owned his grocery store, yeah. worked his tail off and he did very, did very well with it. Right. So I always wanted to have that. I wanted, I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to have, I wanted to create my own financial future and financial freedom. So I didn't, I wasn't afraid of it. And the other side of that coin is what really did I have to lose? All right. right. I, I, I knew what the bottom felt like because I was living there, right? Yeah. So, 
it was, I was fearless. Right. And so I just said, and I never, I never thought about, oh my gosh, I'm, what am I, I'm crazy. All I ever saw was this opportunity. And, and I knew that I had the ability to do it. I knew I had the work ethic. So I wasn't worried about that. I wasn't worried about, oh my gosh, I'm going to have no free time to hang out with my friends. Hey, look, this was a priority for me. And that's one thing that I, that I really made a point of over that eight years, I had laser vision on what I wanted to accomplish. So it wasn't about, I mean, if I, it wasn't about going out weekends with my buddies or whatnot. If, if I had the time, I would. Um, but, but I always get my work done first. Mm-hmm. Now for you, did you have a mentor that helped you kind of through growing the business? Or would you say a lot of that was just what you saw your dad do and how he operated his business? No question. My dad was my mentor a hundred percent. I mean, a hundred percent. And, and, you know, he just had an unbelievable work ethic, but he also, the other thing that, that I really appreciate about my father is just his ability to get people inspired around him, his, mm. the ability to get people to pull deep on the oars in the same direction. Right. Yeah. He did that. He did that by leaning in and making everyone feel like they were part of the team and, and never leave, don't leave anyone behind. So in his, in his sm- small grocery store, you know, you, you would see him stocking shelves. You would see him, carrying out groceries, working the till, and then doing the books. He did it all, right? Yep. And he was not afraid of he didn't put himself above anything. And that's and I, I nor did I. And and I still don't. Yeah. And that's huge. And I think um we were talking uh in the idea of the phrase, that's not my job doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Inside of a company, there especially if you're the one running it, like it's all your job. <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, at that point, I bring that point up a lot with startup companies. Yeah. I talk about the first key employees that you hire, the first three or four or five employees that you hire, that it's a, you, you've got to, you got to have people that are going to be doers, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to look over the shoulders, look for someone else to do it. They're going to be able to multitask. They want to multitask. They share in the vision. They have the passion. Those first employees that you hire are critical. I'm doing it right now with a concept that I'm launching and I'm really selective on the initial hires that I make. Yes, absolutely. That's good. Now, this is something that I'm just wondering about. Uh, so your, your parents sound a little bit like mine. And one thing that I feel extremely blessed on is my parents had extremely high expectations of me. And, you know, that obviously put a lot of pressure on me, but I know there's no way I would be where I am today if, you know, from a very early age, they didn't expect me to be accomplishing certain levels. And it sounds like your parents had, you know, some high expectations on you. So talk a little bit about just, you know, as you reflect on that, you know, how high expectations from, you know, people that you, you care about or, you know, you respect really have, you know, allowed you to hit a stride at an early age. You know what? I mean, I, I wish that I could say that my parents had high expectations of me. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't really, I, I'll be honest with you, and it doesn't make them bad parents. Yeah. Just, you know, they, they're a product of how they grew up. I mean, they both grew up with really large families. Um, both had over 10 kids in their families, right? Right. Farm, farming families, right? And one was in Alabama. My father grew up in Alabama and my mother grew up in North Dakota, right? So they met each other. She was a school teacher and he was in the, in the service. He was in the Air Force. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, so I didn't, get, I didn't get a lot of, hey, Peter, dream big, okay? Yeah. I didn't. Through, the, through my lens, though, I thought that my dad was living the perfect life. I liked the idea of 
you know, he gets to go into work and he would, believe me, he gets to go into work when he wants, but he was one of the first ones there. Make right. no about it. Yeah. And he would work, he would put in a full day. He'd work till six or seven o'clock at night. So he was a, he was a working machine. Why? Because he had seven kids he had to feed. Right, right. So, um, but I saw that and, and I really appreciated that. But, you know, unfortunately, and I talk about this a lot too, when I'm mentoring um, successful people, and I'm talking about, this, this in the light of just financial success, because I, I meet thousands of people who are successful, maybe not financially successful, yep. but they're successful in their own right and how they roll, how they live their life and, yeah. and, and what they give back, how they level up. So I, you know, I always think people always measure success financially, but in this context, that's what I'm referring to. And I talk about the importance of, you know what, when your kids, you know, hit a bunt single, and if they haven't, if they haven't um, gotten on base a lot, you got to make a big freaking deal about it. Right. You know I mean? Because it's different than getting props from someone else. When you get props from your dad, it just lights a fire in your belly. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, and, and for me, I'll be honest with you. I didn't get a hell of a lot of attention from my dad until I was either A, on a racquetball court, mm. right? Yeah. And, or B, um, you know, grew one of the largest wellness brands in the world. I mean, my dad had a front row seat to that, but I'll be honest with you. I, I was doing it for two years and he didn't even know what I was doing. Yeah. Do, do you think there's any part of you that had that desire to grow and grow? And once again, it doesn't have to be a huge part, but a small part that was like, you know, I do want to receive that, you know, recognition for what I'm doing. Oh, for sure. You know what? I mean, you you, you want to deep down, you know, that little boy in you always, I think, wants that. If you can just be perfectly honest and vulnerable about it, you know, the little boy always wants to have that, that those accolades from, from his parents, right? And um, when it doesn't come, you don't roll up in a ball and lay under your desk, right? I mean, you can't. Cause you're, you know what, you're a doer, you're a type A personality and you're a driver, right? And yep. when you, when you have that type of mentality, you're going to get it done. And, and, you know, I always spun it as look, it's their loss. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but then on the same hand, I didn't, I didn't carry, I didn't bear any animosity to him. And I don't, I mean, I, yep. I love my dad dearly today. He's 91 years old. He's a total great guy, rancher out in South Dakota, you know, but he, because the, and I'll tell you why, because he, he did the best with, with what he had. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't know what he didn't know. And that's okay. Right. It doesn't make it wrong. Right. So, and, you know, I'm sure that he doesn't think about it. And so why should I keep playing that in my head? You know what right. I mean? Yeah. You know, the, the same with the same with, with my mother. Right. I, I just look, they, they played the hand they're dealt. They did the best they could and, and they did a great job. Yep. I love it. So back into it, you've taken over the first gym and you've turned it profitable. You've been able to buy it out and you grow it into, I believe it's seven total gyms, right? Yeah, I did seven. Mm -hmm. Seven. And then yeah. you end up saying, you know what? It's a good time for me to exit out of this gym franchise as it stands. Yeah, I did. I've been doing it for 20 years and yeah. honestly, I sold them. At the time I was married, I, I had three kids that were five, three and one. And um and I just, I'd been doing it for 20 years. So I said, look, I'm going to try something else. I, I, and I don't know what that something else was. So I sold those clubs. I had about 3 million in the bank. I didn't have any debt. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. Yeah. Right. I wasn't rich, but it was the most, it was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. Right. At that time. 
and then I, I tell people, so I'm about 40 years old at that time. And, um, and I, as much as I wanted to leave the fitness space, I was always drawn back to it. Why? Because I spent my whole life there and I was passionate about it. And, and I love the energy of the fitness space. So I ended up staying there and, and, um, created, you know, rather than build a big full service club with indoor pools and, and, and aerobic studios and racquetball courts, I just, I built a, a, a club that just, that had the necessities of getting fit. So it was lots of cardio, lots of strength, lots of selectorized equipment, 24 hours a day. And it was in a footprint of about 4,000 square feet. You belong to one, you belong to them all, no contract and about 35 bucks a month. So I designed a concept that I thought would resonate with the consumer. And it did, you know, to my surprise, I was selling and I was selling enough memberships in the first 90 days of these clubs to cash flow for the year. Yeah. I mean, these things I was, and and when it started doing that, then, and I built the first three clubs that I built, I built one in an urban market, a mid-sized market and a small little rural community. Yes. And when, when the store performed the same way in all, all three markets, I knew I had a tiger by the tail. Yes. Now, one thing I want to rewind just quickly to, because I think how you got back into the fitness industry is fascinating. You had an ex-employee that calls you and says, Hey, I, uh, I would really love if you would be willing to open up a gym and I'll run it for you. You don't have to worry about it. I'll run it for you. So, you know, I, I, one thing I want to highlight or maybe have you highlight would be, you know, what it was about that specific employee, right? Because we can all say we've worked with a lot of people and not everyone that would call us, would we be willing to, you know, enter into a business venture with, but talk a little bit about, you know, what it was about that person that really made you feel like, all right, this would be a good business venture, you know, with well, this, that individual. Man, this guy was, he was a great guy. He'd worked with me, man, he'd worked with me for probably 10 plus years. Right. Yeah. And I pulled him right, I pulled him right out of college. He was going to the junior college right there. And um, he, he was working for me, did a great job. And he was the kind of, he was the kind of employee that if a hand grenade came in the room, he'd dive on it for you, right? I mean, yeah. he's that, that kind of loyalty. So I felt, I felt indebted to him. And, and I set up a great comp plan for him when I sold those clubs. So he was, he was positioned to make more money than he'd ever made in his life, right? Yeah. But um, he didn't like it. He didn't enjoy it. And so that's why I felt indebted to him. I knew that I was not going to build a full service club because I didn't want to, I didn't want to take the 3 million that I, that I had sitting there in cash and sink, you know, a million plus in, into another gym. I didn't want to do right, that. Right. But, so that put me in the mindset of what if, what if I eliminate the pool and this? And so I just started eliminating all these things and, and was, was left with the things that, that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, and suddenly it was a 10th of the cost and, instead of 50 employees, it was two. I mean, the unit level economics, it comes as no surprise that it, that they just, they absolutely just ripped it. Right. Because it was just a, it was, it was a relevant product. It was affordable to build and it resonated with the consumer's uh, demands. Yeah. That's so good. And one thing that I would just add, and I, I don't know if you're a football guy or not, but Clemson's head coach Dabo, um, you know, one thing that he preaches is, you know, whatever you're doing, just be the best at it. Right. If you're if you're the person at the grocery store that's checking bags, just be the best at because you never know who's watching or who's paying attention to it and when that'll come full circle. And my guess is there's probably a handful of people that work for you, maybe equally as long that if they would have called you been like, no, you know, I'm good. But because you'd seen, you know, the dedication from that guy, you'd seen, you know, the buy in, you're like, yes, I'm willing to, you know, venture into this with you. 
for sure for sure and did and and did and uh you know what it's so it just a you know it was an interesting turn of events and obviously i didn't know at the time that i was if somebody had asked me you know when i had club number five if they had said hey peter do you think you're going to build one of the largest wellness brands ever made I, yeah i would have said because I, i'm i'm humble right i would have said probably not yeah. right but i would have known deep down i would have i would also said but I'm perfectly capable of it. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to try, yeah. I know I'm capable of it. I don't know that I'll do it. Yeah. I mean, that's a lofty goal that you're just throwing out there. I mean, why don't we try to get to 50 clubs first, you know, yeah. let alone 6,000 in 28 countries. I was going to say, so yeah, it gets to a bit more than 50 even, but let's talk about the progression. I know we have the one explosion year where there was 377 different stores open in a year. By the way, if you're trying to do the quick math, that's more than one per day. But was there a certain number where you were at like, hey, at 20, at 100, at 1,000, all of a sudden we really saw it ramp up or what was kind of the progression there? Well, look, for me, it was the, the first 50, putting putting the first 50 in the ground um, and, and really fine-tuning the systems and processes, right? Yeah. So there's a number of systems and processes that need to be essentially cast in a lane. And you need to have someone to quarterback, be the captain of each lane, all right? Yep. And if you, if you can build 50, and if you have everything buttoned down within those lanes, if you can build 50, you can build 500. And I truly mean that. Yeah. You just have to, and for, so me, I, I always looked at myself as the head coach and each one of these people were a captain of their lane. And it was my job to make sure that every lane ran fluently. Okay. Mm, yeah. and, every, and everyone stayed in their lane. And when a lane was getting pushed to 110%, then I would put more resources in that lane to help them keep up. So you add a resource. Now it goes from hundred percent capacity down to 70. And then you, and then as things continue to toggle up, you add another resource there. So you just manage them. And some of the different departments needed less resources than others, but it's just, honestly, when I think, when I think about that and people say, man, that was amazing that you had that foresight that always came natural for me. I've always been a system process guy. I've always been a guy that says, look, if this is where we want to go, this is what it's going to take to get us there. Yeah. You build the team to get you there. You know, yeah. it's not, it's not dumb luck. I knew it was going to be hard work, but I had already had hard work. So right. I, I was fine with the hard work part. It was just putting the appropriate resources in place, yeah. getting them to level up and feel like they were part of a team. Mm. When you, when you, when you get people feeling like that, like they're really part, part of something big, that's when the magic happens. Yeah, that's good. Now, a, a question I would have is when you were, you know, revamping and bringing the original gym right before you sold it up and you were built and you were able to expand it to seven, what was one of the hardest principles or lessons you had to learn in that first business that you're able to take into the second one that allowed you to say, not going to happen this time, not making the same, you know, mistake or not making the same choice? Well, you know, for me at that time of my life, I mean, access to capital was the hardest piece. Yeah. To be honest with you, it was. It was the hard, access to capital because the the capital was ten times what I was spending on a on a typical <laughs> right. club, right? Yeah. So it was access to capital. And then when I started Snap Fitness, I started Snap Fitness with about three hundred thousand cash. So about ten percent of my savings yeah. went into start this concept. Yeah. And people say, "Oh, no way!" I'm like, "Yeah." For real. 
It was, it was 300 grand. And I mean, to, to build and, and to think about it, and th this is another important point for your audience. From the, from the day I built my first club to the day that I had my first exit was probably six years. And I built, I, I took a $300,000 business and built it into a hundred million dollar company at that time. Okay. In six years, in six years. Six, yep. year, six years. And I sold 40% of the company for roughly 47 million cash. Yeah. Okay. We didn't put any debt on the company that, that 47 million went right in my pocket. Okay. Yep. So now I knew at that point in time that, that my life would never be the same, right. Yeah. In a good way, in a positive way. Right. I didn't let it get to my head. And, you know, I'm the same, I'm the same person that I was then, to be honest with you, I'm the same person. I just may, may have a little bit more scratch, but I'm the same person. I have the same mindset, same mentality. I, and I, I always say money doesn't make the man. Right. And, yep. and I kept, I, I sold 40% of the company. And then over the next five, five years, I, I grew the company, you know, to a $200 million company. Yeah. Right. And then sold another chunk. So today I sit there and I hold about 20% of the, of lift brands. I'm no longer involved on a day-to-day -day level, but the CEO, um, he, he's, I've spoke to him twice today. Right. Yeah. So look, I'm, I'm, I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day decisions. I have, I have a seat on the board, but it's, it's not my, it's not my daily grind anymore. Yeah. So something that I found interesting was exactly what you just said. Hey, I sold, you know, 47% of it. And then later on you sold another chunk of uh, your ownership in there. And so was it, Hey, this is a specific dollar amount that I'm okay exiting, taking some of the chips off the table, if you will. Um, and then similarly, again, Hey, we've reached to another level. I'm okay with taking more chips off. Or did you have, you know, business partners that were really looking to purchase into it or what kind of, you know, made that be the right decision for you at those times? No, I just, for me, I just wanted to be, I was so busy the first five years building clubs. I mean, it right. busy. I didn't have time to think about anything. Right. Yeah. And my phone was ringing, ringing weekly with private equity companies wanting to invest. And, and I'm a, if, if I said no to one, I said no to a hundred. And, but there was one guy in particular that, that uh, worked for summit partners and he would, he would just, he, he was tenacious, man. He kept calling, calling for over a year. Right. And I finally called the guy and then ran a full process and they ended up getting involved. But for me, I knew that when I was going to take chips off the table, it's, and, and I, 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 when I'm, when I'm consulting, I talk about this all the time with, with entrepreneurs who are, who are doing well and their business is growing. You owe it to yourself as an entrepreneur to experience a partial exit. You don't yeah. have, you don't have to give up control. Right. You don't need to hand the keys over, do 40%. And then you're still flying the plane. You're still making the decisions. It's your company. But, but I, then I tell them when you take it the second bite of the apple, don't, don't, you know, sell 20%, sell my recommendation would be sell for another 40%, maybe hold 20 or hold 10%, but, but don't, don't hold on to it because make no mistake about it. And, you know, and I've made that mistake before don't hold the key or don't hand the keys over and put, and put the, the, the direction of the company in someone else's hands. Right. Oh, that's good. That is great yeah. advice. Sometimes it doesn't end well. Right. And, yeah. and it's going to be, it's going to be frustrating as hell for you because it's your baby, right? Yeah. It's your, it's your baby that you created and, and uh, suddenly somebody is taking it in a different direction. And it's usually someone that doesn't have as much experience or knowledge as you do. Yep. They're, 
they, they, every, they make everything so subjective rather than just base it, base it on relevance and the facts. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It happens so every day. Every day. That's good. Well, after you sell, you know, the large stake and you sat down, you've kind of went into a couple of different business ventures, but two that really stood out to me was one in the cannabis industry and then the second in the real estate um, industry. So talk a little bit about how you got tied into that or, you know, how the first, you know, property came to be and uh, then yeah. also the cannabis. I think it was on, the, on, the, on the cannabis space, it was CBD oil on that space. I was asked by a group, I was doing some consulting for them and mm-hmm. And, you know, they wanted to do brick and brick and mortar. And I said, you know, I didn't, I don't think brick and mortar is where it's at on this. And then this was, this is a few years ago now. I said, I don't think brick and mortar is where it's at. I think, I think people, I think the consumer wants to buy this online and they want to buy it for as inexpensive as possible. These guys wanted me to take their, their CBD oil business and create a franchise concept around it. Mm. I said, guys, there's number one, I, I don't think brick and mortar is the answer. Number one, number two, you guys are the supply chain for, for your franchise. So I, nice. I appreciate you want to be vertically integrated, but what are you going to do when, when the supply in the open market is so, it's so, you know, uh, uh, um, saturated. no, yeah, it's so saturated. Thank yeah. you. It's so saturated that, that the price of the products going to come down. Now, meanwhile, unless you guys are going to ride that, that down with them on the margin because when they get into it, they're going to buy a bottle from you for $75 and sell it for 150 because they got to pay the rent. They got to pay their staff. They got all these other costs. Yep. Now that bottle went down to $119. Are you willing to sell yours for 39? Right. And they go, well, hell no. And I go, okay. So what you're telling is that guy now who signed the five-year lease, who's got a franchise commitment to you, you're telling him that he's got to somehow pull a rabbit out of his hat and do 30% more volume to make the same dollar. Yeah. I go, does any of that resonate with you? Does any of that seem mildly fucked up? Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> I mean, and they said, well, Peter, I mean, that's still good margin. I go, well, you're not, you're missing my point. Right. So I said, I'm out, right? I'm out. But in that process, I learned enough about CBD oil that I said, look, I'm going to launch my own brand, right? And yeah. I kept. And you don't have to be vertically integrated. Why? Because there's so much, there's so it's such a saturation of, of people out there that went to the path of creating CBD oil with no means to distribute it. Mm. So I was, I, was, I was buying CBD oil that was completely organic, GMO-free, vegan, gluten-free. Wow. Product, pharmaceutical grade. But I tell you what, if the market's so saturated, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze for me. And that's the other piece of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. Don't get, don't get married to these thoughts. You know what I mean? I looked at it and I said, look, it's not that I can't make a living at this, but there's one thing we all get. We all get 24 hours in a day. Yep. You can spend them any way you want, right? You can't buy more. You don't get less. So yep. I put a real value on how am I spending my time? I, I, so I just said, for me, I'm out. So I, I spun it off. You know, I spun it off. Yeah. And the, the real estate space, yeah. you know, I've always bought, I own a bunch of apartment buildings and things like that. And yeah. uh, always, I, own a, I own a lot of land, but, but, and then that's just the basic block and tackling like, like so many people do. Right. Yeah. But, but I do, I, I own part of a real estate company based out of, out of the Boston area okay. and we're doing consulting for them. So for me, when I'm consulting, a lot of times, um, if I like what I see, 
and and and, and they like what I'm doing for them and their company, then I'll work out rather than paying me because I'm really not, I'm not interested in money, right? In equity. So yeah, that's what I do, I typically take 20, 30 percent equity in the companies, and then but then I I help get them to the promised land because yep. I have a lot of experience, systems, processes, growth, and then most importantly, I know how to exit. I know <laughs> I've. I've done two full processes on Wall Street. I understand how the game is played. Right. That's good. Now, this is completely deviating away from it, but you know, I've heard you talk about your your faith life and you know how important that is to you. Uh, you know, when did that really become something that uh, you know was a, a cornerstone for you? I would say in my 40s. I mean, when I started to, to really um, experience some, you know, some you know, unbelievable wealth, right? Mm. And, you know, you start to reflect on where you came from. Yeah. And you start to play the record of, you know, why, why me? Why was I, why was I so blessed? Right. Because right. you're going to go down one or two paths. You're either going to go down the path of, I'm, I'm pretty freaking great. You just look at me, right? Yep. yep. Or it's all about you. Or you can say, man, you look to the sky and say, I don't know what I ever did to deserve this. Right. And so I'm so, thankful and what can i do for you now you know yeah that's where i'm at you know i meant that's for me you know i do consulting i do a lot of consulting um and and things just keep coming my way you know i forbes contacted me i did a forbes master class for those guys that was great i wrote a best-selling book that was fantastic but you know the funny part is you know if some if some young aspiring entrepreneur you know man or woman if they say hey man can you can you just, I'm, I've got this idea. Can I just get, you know, 15 minutes of your time? I, I, I mean, for me, I'm like, of course, of course I do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I may, it may take me a little, it may take me a couple of weeks to get you in. Right. Yeah. But, but I will do it. I mean, I take those calls and I sit down with them just like I'm sitting down with you and have a, I have a conversation with them and I give them honest feedback. Yep. And I'll, I'll tell them, Hey, look, that's a, that's a, that's a really saturated space that you're going into. I give them honest feedback. Right. I really do. And I tell them, Hey, look, I'm not here to throw a wet blanket on your dream. Right. But here, and if you're going to go down this path, here's some places that here's, here's the low hanging fruit within your space. So go to the low hanging fruit, try to generate some cash flow, because you know, you, you think you're going to get to this place and, and you're going to go out and try to raise capital because, and you're going to think you're going to have this big valuation. And it's not, I'm just telling you that it just, the, the, the world doesn't work like that. Yes. There's no stupid, there's no stupid money out there. So yeah. you, you, friends and family are only going to carry you so far. Right. It's true. It is. No, that's good. Well, I want to wrap up with this question. And uh, it was an idea that was presented to me probably about four or five years ago now. And it's just profoundly impacted the way I view things. And it was the phrase blissful dissatisfaction. And so the idea is, you know, for a lot of people, they will hit a plateau, which means, you know, hey, I hit my first goal and now I'm plateauing. You know, I don't, I, I got caught up in the excitement of hitting that first goal. Kind of the opposite end of the spectrum is there's certain people and it sounds, I think you and I would fall into this category of like, every time I hit one goal, I was constantly like, all right, but now what's next, right? And I'm on to the next thing. And so oftentimes I didn't enjoy the small victories we talked about earlier on the way. So how have you been able to just, you know, balance that in your life of, you know, appreciating, enjoying the, you know, small victories, but not losing the excitement or enthusiasm to keep going on to the next thing? You know, it, 
in that in that in, in that entire question, there's a, a one word that you use that is really really relevant. I talk about it all the time, and it's balance. Okay, and so many times I see people they measure um, their happiness by their financial success. Yeah, okay? and look, I'll be the first one. I mean, I chase I ch I chase that dollar for so many years before I finally caught up with it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was a working fool. I was, I was determined. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, but when you get older, you have perspective, right. You realize that you don't get yesterday back. And mm -hmm. there were some things I say today that, you know, I probably should have done some things differently along the way. Yeah. No, had I done it differently, I wouldn't be where I am today. Right. So, so that's the trade. Yep. Okay. That's the trade. And just being honest with you. Yeah. That's the trade. So, you know, I would have liked to knowing what I know now, I would have, I would have tackled that, that whole, you know, financial success differently with more balance. I would have had more balance with my friends, my family, mm. my faith, you know, myself. Yeah. It's kind of this four-legged table. You got to have some time for yourself. You got to have some me time. Yeah. You gotta have you gotta have time with your significant other, um, and you know your faith. So all, you know all of that. It all matters. Yes. All that happens. You wake up one day and you go, man, what the hell just happened over the last ten years? <laughs> and and one of the things that I'm really really regretful of is I had some amazing friendships as <laughs> as I was building Snap Fitness, and many of those friendships fell by the wayside because you just from just sheer lack of communication on my part. Right. Mean why? Because I was busy. It was not. It was not that it was so intentional, but it was priority. It was a prioritization. And for me, driving my company and not letting go of the wheel. I mean, it's not like I could let go of the wheel because I had. To, I felt like I'm that my management style when I'm growing a growth company. Yeah. I don't. I got to be there driving it. I got to be yep. there flying the plane. Right. I mean, so. I wasn't going to leave it. I wasn't. I wasn't going to put my future in the hands of someone else. Not at that stage of a baby company. Right? Yep. Right. That's growing at the pace that we were growing. You can't. You can't even pivot, man. You've got to be right there. So, yeah. Um, that, so that anyway, that you know, the, the short answer to that question is, man, I can't talk about enough. Balance is so critical in mental health and and the journey. I mean, yeah. I think a life well lived is when you get a chance to experience you know, success in your business, if that's your, if that's your, if that's your, right. that's your jam, you know, success in business, success in a relationship, success with your friends, you feel loved, you feel yeah. wanted, you feel needed, you feel valued, success with your faith, you know, you know, where all of the goodness comes from. Yeah. When you have that in your life, you've lived a perfect life. And that's, that's what I aspire for. Yeah, that's good. Well, Peter, I appreciate your uh, time today and just sharing your story. It's absolutely fascinating from being a little eight-year-old selling popcorn to uh, opening over 6,000 gyms. I mean, what a wild ride. And, uh, you know, we'll have to do this again in about five years because who knows what business you'll be in then or how big you'll have exploded to. So um, I appreciate all your insight, your transparency, vulnerability, and uh, just getting to connect with you. Oh, no, hey, you know what? My pleasure. And I'm happy to come on your show anytime. Thanks so much, Peter.
I love how Peter talked about being willing to take a lower paying job so that way in the future he would have more upside. I think today we try and settle for things that are more immediately gratifying or have a larger payoff while we're giving up longer term upside. Thanks so much for tuning in. Once again, uh, find this on my Instagram or Facebook page, like, comment, share, and we're doing a special giveaway for episode 50. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank mm-hmm. you.